Amen. Lord, you are indeed a wonderful God. We can't even come up with enough ways to describe you. You're so great, so holy, so faithful, so awesome. Lord, I just pray as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. And I know, Lord, many people have been a long day. Some people are weary. But Father, I pray you'd refresh us. Lord, you'd encourage us. You'd strengthen us in the most holy faith. Lord, you'd exhort us if necessary. So, Father, your will be done. You be the teacher tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to have you here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. This Sunday we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the second half, so I encourage you to read that. Also, uh, I, I think Bill mentioned it, I wasn't, I don't know if I heard him or not, but we will be showing the end of the spear on Sunday night. So if you haven't seen that, or even if you have, it's a great movie about uh, Stephen Saint and uh, Jim Elliott. Great movie. You'll be encouraged, encourage you to come to that. Hey, also, if you, if you know, if you want something to pray for me about. Sunday night I'll be speaking at a mini retreat for the Northern California Calvary Chapel pastors. And so I appreciate your prayer for that as well. Uh, I always love to minister to the guys, uh, the pastors here in Northern California. And so I'm looking forward to that time. And I'm not even sure what, I, what chapter I'm going to be sharing with them yet. So I'd appreciate your prayer over the next few days. All right. Well, that being said, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And to catch us up, remember that this is a time after the time of Judges, chronologically, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. We know that the end of the time of the Judges is about to come, and it's about to transition the time of the kings. So Samuel will be the last of the Judges. Samuel was a young boy who, his mom Hannah, was desperate to have a child. God brought her to that place where she would come to a point where she was willing to give him to service to the Lord. He began serving in the tabernacle as a very small boy. We know that uh, Eli was a man who raised him. Eli could not hear from God, but Samuel could, even as a young child. Great lesson for all of us. So that even a young child who was willing could hear from the Lord, where a man who was supposed to be serving God could not. His own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were very evil and wicked. They turned the tabernacle into a place that people dreaded going to because of the perversion that was going on there and the, and the thievery. It was just... It was, it was horrific. And then they took the ark out into battle, thinking that that would force God's hand to help them win. We know what happened. The ark was then captured. It was taken away by the Philistines, who were then cursed by the ark everywhere they put it. Remember that Israel put their faith in it when they should have been putting their faith in God. And the Philistines thought that they had God under wraps because they had the ark. Guys, nobody's ever going to have God under wraps. And no one's ever going to overcome God or defeat God or anything like that. So it's foolishness to think so. But we see there that the Philistines found out quickly as Dagon kept falling down and eventually his head and arms fell off. And then uh, they got tumors, which... One translation would be hemorrhoids, and they had rats running free. And they decided, you know what, this ark, not so much. So they gave it back. But we know what happened was the people of Beth Shemesh opened up the lid and looked in to make sure that the Ten Commandments were still there. And that didn't work out too well, because you should never remove the mercy seat from a, the covering the law. You look directly at the law, and what happens? You die. And you and I, it's the same. If we look at the law, it's a mirror that reveals our sin. But the law cannot save us. Only Jesus can. So then we saw the ark move on to the people of Kirjath-Jerim. We saw revival come to the children of Israel because they finally started to worship the Lord again. They got rid of all their false idols. They started making God the priority yet again. And you would think when you get to chapter 7, pretty exciting stuff. You think, wow, this is great. The children of Israel are finally starting to grasp it. They're finally getting it. They're finally getting their eyes back on God. Well, sadly, that's not what happened. 
What happened instead was, even though God had done all these great things, they put him back on the throne, they were, they were broken and confessing before him, they were fasting and praying. When you get to chapter 8, they cry out for a king. It doesn't take them very long to realize God's blessing them, doing great things in their life, and all of a sudden now they start looking at the world. I titled the message in chapter 8, Falling Away from God, How to Quench the Spirit of Revival. And you do that by looking to men instead of to God, looking to the world for direction, disregarding God's word, demanding your will instead of the Lord's. And then we got to chapter 9 last week. If you remember that, that was uh, the beginning of our look at this man by the name of Saul. We're moving from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. But the sad part about this is that God was their king. And they had been warned already, they're being told and they're being warned, if you cry out for a king, if you ask for a king, here's what he's going to do to you. He's going to put you in bondage, he's going to take your children from you, and by the time it's over, you're going to wish you didn't have a king. And then what they do? Give us a king anyway. And we're so often like that with God. We act like God's word is just a suggestion that might be helpful. But it's the word of God, amen? amen. And it's not the ten suggestions, it's the ten commandments, and it's not, you know... Paul's opinion, it's God's word. And sadly what happens, it's happening today, the word of God is becoming less and less in the eyes of men. We want to remove it from everything. And you know what? We complain about them removing it from schools, and yet we don't read it at home. That was an ouch for somebody, amen? Here's the point. Well, men, they ought to have it back in school. How about we dust it off at home and start reading it at our house, amen? They can't stop you from doing that. And they can't stop you from doing it at work, regardless of what your boss may say. So take it anyway, right? Now here's the thing. We saw last week that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And we saw that Saul from the world had it all going on. That from the world's perspective, he was the guy. Outward characteristics hid a lack of inward character. He was a man of wealth and good looks and stature. It even says that he was better looking than anyone. That includes the women. So he must have been a good looking guy, I guess, right? He was a man who appeared to obey and care for his father, but we're going to find out, not really. He was really more of a man who followed his own way. He was a man who appeared to both respect and honor and seek out godly direction, but as we're going to see in the end, when we get a few chapters down the road, that's not him either. He was a man who appeared to have God's hand upon him, and he will for a while. We'll see that starting tonight. But guys, it's not how we start, it's how we finish. It doesn't matter how we may appear for a short amount of time. You know, it grieves my heart. I can't tell you how many times I'm shocked where I take a look at someone's life for a short period of time. I get one impression about the person they are, and then I find out in not very many months that that's not the person who they are at all. And the truth is, we can fool men, but we can't fool God. And Saul, we're going to see how he's got everything going on from the world's perspective, but we're going to see the grace of God in tonight's chapter, because even though Saul is really a man who is, didn't, he didn't even know who Samuel was. I'll give you an idea what kind of man he was. He lived five miles away from the prophet in Israel, and when he met him, he asked where the seer instead of the prophet was. So he called him a seer, that tells me one thing, and he didn't recognize Samuel, that tells me something else. When he lived five miles away from him. Imagine if you lived five miles away from Billy Graham, and he was the only evangelist on the planet at the time, and you walked up to him on the street and asked him where the evangelist was. Well, that's kind of where Saul was at. And so we're finding out that this guy had it all going on from the world's perspective, but from a spiritual one, he had a lot lacking. Head and shoulders above everybody else, handsome guy, charismatic, wealthy family, but he was a man that was far away from God. Now what's amazing about this is they choose a man, and God's going to give them the type of a king that they want. 
And he's going to not only give them the kind of king that they want, the best looking guy, the tallest guy, the strongest guy, the most yoked guy, all those things, right? Wealthy guy, charismatic guy. Everybody look, oh yeah, king, that's, a, that's what we want. We want a king just like him. But what's amazing in tonight's text, he's also going to bless this guy spiritually. And I believe the point he's going to make for all of us is this. If someone is not called and gifted by God to have the position that they have, it doesn't matter how many advantages we give them, they will fail. It's got to be God who does it. And it's got to be someone who's broken and humble before God, not someone who's charismatic and people look to and long for. And the whole point we're going to see in tonight's text is we should never put our eyes on men because men will fail us. We should never put our eyes on a, you know, we look at a charismatic athlete. You know, I'm really leery of that. Pastor's opinion. I don't get it how, why we idolize men. Amen. You stop doing that. Amen. Why? Because they're men in desperate need of a Savior. I don't need to idolize Terrell Owens. I need to tell him about Jesus. Amen? Amen. He needs to hear about the Lord instead of me wearing his jersey, right? I need to mail him a Bible or something instead. And here's the point. And I'm not picking on one guy, but here's the thing. We got these arrogant... You know, and we want to follow after them. We're more worried about some actor's life and, and who they're marrying and what kids they're adopting and who they left and all this stuff than we're worried about the Word of God. And you know what? We need to get back to making God the priority. Now, we need to pray for those people and love those people. But let's get, and here's, this is what's happening. They want, they want a real live, you know, celebrity in Israel. Give us a celebrity. Give us somebody that can be famous, that we can fawn over, that we can look at. And sadly, that's what's happening even in the church today. We need to be very, very careful. There's only room for one celebrity in Christianity, and his name's Jesus Christ. God is going to give Israel exactly what they want, an earthly king rather than a heavenly one. And we're going to see in tonight's text how it works out for him. You know what? Now, if, if I was God, and aren't you glad I'm not? I'm glad I'm not too. But if I were God, they cry out for a king, I'd say, okay, you want the guy? Here you go. Let's see how it works out for you. I'm going to just leave you alone for a while. I'll take my hand off you. I've been protecting you. You didn't know it. But I'm going to go ahead and let him be king and just see how that works out for you. There you go. You'll be crying for me soon. You know what I mean? And that's the way we would respond in our flesh. Kick them down to what they want and let them see what happens. Sometimes we even do that with our children. They cry for something. Okay. Have it. And then when they, you know, when, oh, well, I guess that wasn't a good idea, was it? But here's the thing. God continues to show them grace. Well, this is how we would respond by saying, let's see how it works for you. God, in His grace, even though they're in direct rebellion against Him, He reaches out to them, and He's going to give this king of theirs every opportunity in the world to succeed. And I'm absolutely blown away by it. Our God is so gracious to each one of us, too, that as, you know, he calls us, He is faithful to equip us with everything we need to be fruitful and successful in our calling. And the same thing is He going to do in the life of Saul. Even though Saul is not His guy, He's going to be the guy they want, so He's going to say, okay, you can have Him. But He's not His guy, but yet He's still going to give Him every opportunity to be successful from a spiritual perspective. You know what? Like Saul, we have an opportunity to be used by God, and like Saul, we must choose to respond in obedience or like Saul, we can allow pride, fear, and a lack of faith to render us ineffective. So if you're a note taker, I titled the message tonight, Faithfully Responding to God's Calling. Faithfully, faithfully Responding to God's Calling. And we're going to see six points. Number one, recognize that God has a calling on your life. If you're saved, you're called. Amen. Every one of you. Amen. 
God didn't call you to be a pew potato. He didn't call you to, you know, so you could just sit and be the biggest, fattest, best fed sheep in town. He called you to use you, amen? Amen. So number one, recognize that God has a calling on your life. Number two, realize that God is with you in your calling. You know, God doesn't call you and then just leave you alone. He calls you, He walks with you, He equips you, He stands for you, He strengthens you. What a great and awesome God. Number three, remember that God gives us clear direction in His Word. We need to remember that God gives us clear direction in His Word. If we want to be faithful in responding to God's call, remember one of the main places we need to look for that calling and that direction is in the Word of God. Number four, rest in the promise that his, He empowers us to walk in obedience to His Word. So He doesn't just give us direction from His Word, but then He empowers us to obey. Now, will we ever be sinless? What's the answer? But we should sin less, amen? amen? And we should be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we should be desiring to be holy before Him. And then last two points here, we need to respond in faith. How, how are, do we respond to God's calling? We respond in faith. And then lastly, we need to re- resist being swayed by the words of men, either praise or persecution. Don't let the word of man lead you. Let the word of God lead you. Amen? Amen. And we're going to see all this in tonight's text. Let's begin looking at faithfully responding to God's calling. Number one, recognize that God has a calling on your life. So 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. Now, here we have the literal anointing of Saul becoming king. He is king right here. Soon as the pouring out of the oil upon his head happens, he is anointed. The word anointed, again, oil poured out. Oil in Scripture is a type of? The Holy Spirit. And without the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, there will be no fruit in anything that we do. The Bible says without him we can do nothing. So we need the Holy Spirit. And we see here that he pours out the Holy Spirit, a picture of the Holy Spirit, a type of it. Now we know the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him in, in, a, in a short amount of time. But this is a picture already, an outward picture of what's about to happen inwardly. Kind of like baptism in reverse. You know, baptism is an outward statement of an inward change, right? It's something we do after salvation to let everybody know what has already happen, happened inwardly. This is the anointing, the pouring on of oil about what is about to happen in his life. Now the same thing is going to happen with David. He's going to have oil poured upon him, but when it happens to him, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him immediately. The Holy Spirit is, not going, to, is going to follow and come upon this man Saul. Now we look at this and we think, now wait a minute, weren't we talking last week about what a knucklehead Saul was? And yet God's going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon him? Isn't it good that God pours out the Holy Spirit on knuckleheads? Because none of us would have it otherwise. Amen? (laughs) We would not have him otherwise. So praise God for his grace. So just like in this case, this is the first king oil poured out upon him. In Leviticus 8.12, when they consecrated the first high priest, they poured out oil upon him as well. Same was Aaron. Now, In each case, this outward anointing was a sign of a heavenly calling and of the Holy Spirit coming upon them for a specific service. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not reign with them for a lifetime except in the cases of a few people. For the most part, the Holy Spirit was given to them to help them accomplish a specific task. But the Holy Spirit, then again, when they would rebel against God, would be be removed from them. Remember, David cried out in the Psalms, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 
Because the Holy Spirit in times of rebellion was removed from them. We are the most blessed of all people because when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and He never leaves. Ever. What an incredible, gracious, loving God. Now, for some of us, that's a good thing. For others, we think, well, wait a minute. There's a few times I wish He wasn't around. Because He is there to convict us of sin. Amen? Because Amen. He loves us. So the oil is seen in Scripture as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And in Saul's life, he's going to come in contact with the Holy Spirit just a few hours from this time. But again, in the time of David, he came upon him immediately. Now, this oil could be poured or sprinkled. What's interesting about that, it shows us that the Holy Spirit equipping for service is poured out in different ways, in different measures, at different times on different people. It's not always the same. You know, he can pour out the Holy Spirit upon you and give you, the gift, give you a gifting that nobody sees. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit to be a prayer warrior. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit to do something, again, behind the scenes. So it's not always evident to all men. It's not always given the same way, but it's the same Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting, in Exodus 30, when it describes this oil, if you guys were here back in Exodus, it was a sacred compound not to be imitated nor used as normal perfuming oil. It was only used for this specific purpose. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is never to be imitated. The Holy Spirit is never to be conjured up. And it says it shall not be poured out by any means on man's flesh. So it's poured out upon his head. Why? Because again, it was to come in contact with his head first. And it said, nor shall you make any like it. It is holy and shall be holy to you. Again, there's no place for encouraging a fleshly imitation of the works of the Holy Spirit. You see this in churches today. They'll call people forward and tell them to loosen up their jaw and say, watermelon, watermelon, and you'll start speaking in tongues. We do not manipulate the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He knows what He's doing. We don't have to manipulate Him. We have to rest in Him and let Him move in His perfect timing. Amen? And so we're not to imitate it, we're not to try to make conjure it up and make phony uh, you know, applications of the Holy Spirit. So Saul, the king they wanted with the fleshly characteristics that they placed confidence in, that they had been warned would be a, a disaster, God shows grace in the midst of the rebellion and is going to give this king every opportunity to succeed. And the way he's going to start by doing it is by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon him pours out His Holy Spirit upon this fleshly king. And again, praise God that we have the Holy Spirit in us at all times. It says there, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. More than just a greeting, it was a sign of Samuel's personal support of Saul. So not only is he filled with the Holy Spirit, about to be, he has the support of God's prophet. Now, this guy has every opportunity to be successful because he's got the holy spirit in him and god's prophet walking with him i find it interesting though and i didn't have time to do it and i should have so forgive me but there are so many pictures to me of jesus in this chapter it is scary and and i may have to go back next week and just in the review show you all of them because i saw at least 15 of them but i didn't have time to write them all down but i find it interesting that this king is anointed. Who's the king of kings? Jesus. Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting that to begin the you know, service of the kings, it begins with a kiss. And it's interesting that the king of kings was betrayed with a kiss. 
And so the beginning of the kings and the end of the king of kings uh, toward the, you know, him being taken to the cross were sealed in the very same way where one was showing the prophet was coming alongside them. Another one showed a brother was betraying him. There's a bunch of this stuff in the chapter. It's great stuff. But you got to love the Bible. Now, it says here, it, is, it says, he kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now, there's many aspects of Saul's anointing that were memorable to him, and they all apply to us. The first thing is, how many people are here when he gets anointed? None. Saul, Samuel, that's it. And I find it interesting that his calling comes in secret. And I find this to be true for most people. Because the same thing happened to David. David was alone. Samuel came out. They called the brothers out. It's when he goes out and eventually anoints him. As Christian, our anointing and our calling, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, often comes upon us in a private way. It's not, you know, sometimes it can happen in a church service where you come forward. But again, ultimately, the truth about the Holy Spirit coming upon you is usually between you and God. And most often it takes place when we're worshiping the Lord one-on-one, when we're in a private prayer time, when we're spending time in the Word of God. And so we see this happening here, that Saul is alone with the prophet of God, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, much like the picture of what can happen to us. Again, it can happen in an afterglow service. It can happen when we ask people to stand up and receive the Holy Spirit. God can do that. But ultimately, God, only you and God know if your heart is sincere and you're crying out for it. Because here's the truth, guys. There's nothing you have to do to be baptized in the Holy Spirit other than ask and mean it. If you come and ask, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit, He's going to answer that prayer every single time. You empty yourself out, fill me with you, He'll answer that prayer every single time. So not only was it done in secret, but it was a memorable event. Now, listen to this. His head was drenched with oil. Now, when this would happen, it says in Psalms 133, it describes how messy the anointing can be. It's like precious oil running on the head, down the beard, running down the edge of the garments. So it was, he was saturated. And I like that. Because don't you want to be saturated in the Holy Spirit? And that's what this guy's going to need if he's going to be successful. But so do you and I need it if we're going to be fruitful in the calling God has in our life. If we try to do it in our power, if we try to do it when we're spiritually dry, as opposed to being drenched by Him, it's going to come to nothing. As Christians are filling, our baptism of the Holy Spirit should be a memorable event. It should be memorable and evident to us and to others as they take a look at us over time. Saul could look back on this day, this event, and know that God had called him to something special as King of Israel, and so too should you and I be able to look back. Some of you have told me about a time when you stood up in this church, prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and have told me my life has never been the same. And you know what? You know it, and God knows it. Not only that, as we've talked about, it was a prophetic anointing because Saul is the first king and Jesus is the king of kings. And it's interesting that Messiah or Christ means anointed one. And so Jesus is the ultimate one who was anointed. So it says he will be the commander over his inheritance. Now this ought to bring a sense of importance to his calling. Because he's, Samuel reminds Saul that Israel belongs to the Lord. And so you're going to be the commander over his inheritance. These ones you're caring for belong to him, not you, Saul. They're his. 
And the same is true for every calling that there is. Because if we're ministering to the three-year-olds in the children's ministry, those are his kids. Amen. And we're ministering to them, but it's not, they're not our sheep, they're his sheep. Amen. And there's a heavy accountability to be faithful to the calling God has had us upon our life to realize who we're caring for. Saul was to lead and care for God's people, be the best king he could be, as those he was to care for were the Lord's. And the same is true again for us today. As we minister, we must remember they're his people, his sheep, it's his ministry, and all should be done for his glory, not ours. So Saul, you and I are to minister to them, not according to our pleasure, but according to the will and mind of God. So, faithfully responding to God's calling, first of all, recognize that God has a calling on your life. He does. If you don't know what it is, pray. Wait upon the Lord. More, more times, and remember this too, a burden is the spawning ground of a calling. When you start to get a burden for something, often that's God moving on your heart to do something about it. When I was a youth pastor, I was so burdened for teenagers, and, and I think I always will be. But I would drive down the street and see teenagers on a corner and I would pull my car over and get out and talk to them. Now, sometimes they'd run away, but... <laughs> the, you know, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. So don't come up to me and say, I really have a burden for something, and Pastor, I think you should do it. I'll say, well, no, you have a burden, so you should do it. Amen? <laughs> so we need to recognize that God has a calling on our life. How do we faithfully respond to God's calling? First, we must recognize it. Number two, realize that God is with you in your calling. How could young Saul be sure that God had really chosen him? How did he really know that when Samuel came and said, you're going to be the next king, that it was for real? Well, Samuel's going to give Saul three signs of special occurrences he would encounter on his way home, each teaching him about God's power, his provision, and his sovereignty. Look at verse 2. It says, When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So you shall find two men at Rachel's tomb. Where was Rachel's tomb? It's in Bethlehem. Okay, outskirts of Bethlehem. She had a son, Benjamin. She named him first Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. His father, Jacob, changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Both of those being pictures or types of Christ. Right? He was acquainted with our sorrows and griefs. Where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, pictures of Jesus all over this. But imagine, this is a pretty clear prophecy, isn't it? He doesn't say, you know, there's somebody in this room who's tired. I'm a prophet. Duh. Here's the point. You know, there's somebody in the listening audience of the five million people listening on TV that has a headache. Oh, you're a prophet. No, you're not. Look how specific this prophecy is. This, this prophecy is so specific that if, it's, if it comes to light, only God could have done it. He says, you're going to go and you're going to stop by Rachel's tomb and there's going to be two guys. Not three, not one, not five, two. Two guys there. And they're going to talk to you and they're going to ask you a question. And now, if he goes and he gets there and there's not two guys there, then it's not the word of God. If there's five guys there, they don't say to him what they're supposed to say. It's not the word of God. And Samuel gives Saul a specific prophetic word from God by which Saul could have confidence that his anointing was really from 
God. And then he says, this day will say to you, again, if they didn't say exactly what he said, Samuel's not a true prophet, he's not truly called to be king, and he said, the donkeys you look for have been found, assured Saul that God could handle his problem. See, not only was he given him prophetic truth, but as he was getting the prophetic truth, God was teaching Saul things that he needed to know to be a faithful king. The first thing he needed to know was God could handle his problems even when he wasn't around. He needed to know he'd been looking for the donkeys. You couldn't find them. God took care of it. And that's the God we serve, you guys. We need to be busy and faithful to understand that God can handle any problem no matter how great. Our God is greater than any struggle, any trial, any difficulty. When did he find the donkeys? Samuel and Saul were having dinner, and God found them. God didn't lose them. He knew where they were all along. He just brought them home. Amen? Amen. And the point is that he was in a place where God was ministering to him through Samuel, and God took care of his needs. Now again, this is not a recipe for laziness. Let me make that really clear. God will handle it, but God often handles it through your own hands. The Bible says in Genesis 3, you shall toil by the sweat of your brow all the days of your life to provide for your family, speaking to men. And women will have pain in childbirth, so you can thank Adam and Eve for that. Now, but the point is that he's not only teaching Saul that he can trust the word of God, but he's also teaching Saul how to be a faithful and godly king. So Saul would struggle with this lesson, sadly, because as one of the greatest leaders, of, it's one of his greatest failures is his inability to let God be in charge. See, God's saying, I can be in charge, you just follow me, and what's going to happen is, he's going to start off that way, but not long afterward, he's going to try to take control himself. Now, nobody else has ever done that. <laughs> you know, we let God be in control until things get a little hairy, and then we want to jump in. And that's exactly what we're going to see Saul do when we get to chapter 13. Now, it says in verses 3 and 4, not only will this happen, but look what else. Then you shall go on forward from there and come to a terebinth tree of Tabor. Three young men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. Now, is that specific or what? Not two goats or five goats, three. Three loaves of bread, skin of wine, three guys going up to Bethel, house of God, going up to worship and minister to the Lord and, and give sacrifice to God and bring things to the Levites who serve them. And you're going to run into them and they're going to stop and turn around to a stranger they've never seen before. They don't know your name. They don't know who you are. And they're going to give you two loaves of bread that they meant to go up and give to the Levites. That's what's going to happen. Now, how in the world does that happen unless God makes it happen? It doesn't. But isn't it interesting, again, that it's three kids or goats, it's bread and it's wine. What in the world is that a picture of? Boy, the bread and the wine, a picture of the Lord's Supper. A picture of His body broken for us. And again, the, the wine being a picture of His blood that was shed for us. And we know that when they made sacrifice, they took one goat, and confessed the sins of Israel over it, and they sent it out as far as the east is from the west. They would send it out to the west and let it run, and they had people at different spots, and they would t tell them when the goat passed by, it was just heading out to the west. Isn't that interesting? That's where you get the word scapegoat. The sins were confessed over it. It ran, and guess what? Our sin is separated as far as the east is from the west, and don't you love that it's all the way back here in 1 Samuel. When the first king is anointed, all of this is pointing to the king of kings. This is man's king, not going to work out, but there's a king of kings coming that is going to fulfill it all. Amen. 
What a great and awesome God that we serve. And they're going up to Bethel, the house of God. In the midst of godlessness, this encourages me that there's three young men anyway that love God. And praise God, in the midst of a fairly godless county, there are at least 100 people in here that love God. Amen? And so there are a remnant wherever there is people in rebellion. Praise the Lord that God is still doing a great work. They're going to give him two loaves of bread. If you remember from the last chapter, they didn't have any bread left. You remember that? Remember they said, we don't know what to give Samuel. What are we going to give him? We don't have any food. We got nothing. So not only was he fed by the prophet Samuel, but now he's going to go out and these three men are going to provide for his needs. So the Lord's not only, again, prophetically showing him that he is indeed God and in control of all things, but he's showing Saul, I will provide for you. As you walk with me, not only am I in control, but I want you to know I'm going to provide for you as you walk in obedience to me. You know, I, and again, please don't take this wrong, but people will come and tell me God's not providing. Let me tell you right now, you're, you're wrong. Well, God's not providing. No, you're being lazy. No, you're not working. I had a guy get mad. God's not providing. No, yeah, God, what's well, anything? Someone's a liar. You, God, let me think. You. <laughs> We, guys, God makes promises in his word, and he is always right. Amen. And we see here that as they're just going along, and he's walking in the center of God's will, if he will obey God's plan, that God is in control, and God promises to provide, and look what he does. And God will provide as we are busy about his work. So again, as this occurs, exactly as, what, as being prophesied, is proof of Samuel's calling as a prophet, Saul's calling as a king, and we see this again. The only way this could happen is if God's hand was on it. And he's working not only on Saul's heart, but think of this too. You know what's incredible to me? I wonder if these three guys who did this had any clue how significant this was. You know, we always look at the one side of the prophetic thing that's happening. We never, we always, sometimes we forget about the fact that God's working on both sides. You know, sometimes we don't realize that. I remember hearing a story one time not too long ago. Uh, it was shared at a missions conference, a pastor's conference, about a guy who said that, he was a, pa- a Calvary Chapel pastor, who said that God put it on his heart to go out in the middle of the night and buy some milk. And he's like, Lord, are you, and so he went out and bought some milk. And he's like, I'm buying milk at two o'clock in the morning, I don't understand this. But he just said, Lord, okay, I'm buying milk. And then he, he was driving home not knowing what in the world, am I supposed to go home and eat some Wheaties? What am I supposed to do with this? But he said he was driving home and God directed him down this one street and he got down this one street and he was driving and he came to a stop sign and he could hear some noise and a baby crying in a house at the corner so he stopped his car he went and knocked on the door and he felt like these people are going to call the police on me and think i've lost my mind i'm knocking on their door two o'clock in the morning to hand them milk people think i've lost it he knocks on the door the lady opens up the door and he says i know you're gonna think i'm out of my mind but God told me to bring you this. And the woman began to weep and said, we have been totally out of money. My husband is, is, is very ill, and I've been praying that somehow I could have enough money to get milk for my baby. Now, God works on both sides. Someone's praying, someone's listening, amen? And God is ministering through both hearts to bring those things together. And what happens here is these guys are walking up to the house of God. We know they're godly men. They're seeking the Lord. And this guy comes along a stranger. And God must have spoke to them. They turn around and hand him two loaves of bread. And might have walked away thinking, well, I don't know why we did that, but God told us, so that's it. And not realizing they're in the Bible now. Amen? (laughs) 
they're in heaven going, man, we're in the Bible because we gave that bread up, man, that was good. So God is showing Saul he could solve his problems and also provide for his needs. Now look at verses 5 and 6. After that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Now again, is that specific or what? He's not only saying, they're coming down from the mountain, a group of prophets, and here's the instruments they're going to be playing while they're coming down. And they're going to be prophesying, I believe in this case, worshiping. And you're going to hear them as they're coming down. Now again, very specific. And only God can make this happen. Only God with His hand upon them. And it says they'll be prophesying, which means speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Prophesying is not always foretelling, which is what Samuel is doing right here. Sometimes it's just foretelling, proclaiming the word of God. And it can even be literally just worship. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So he's telling him, this is what you can expect. Verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man. Now that's good stuff. Because we know the Saul that he is, not so much. But you know what? Isn't that every one of us before we came to meet Jesus Christ? You know, I'm baffled sometimes, and I, I'm going through this right now on the, on the senior pastor server. You know, there's a couple thousand Calvary pastors, and we exchange information. And every once in a while, there's, there's this thing about some certain sin that people think can't be overcome. Well, this guy has a sin in his background. I don't think we should ever let him serve in the church. I'm right back. How about Saul of Tarsus? Murdering Christians, holding the coats while Stephen's being stoned, turns into the Apostle Paul. I'm thinking God can use anybody. Amen? Amen. I think we need to quit looking at the person they were and look at the person they are. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. So let's, you know, and we know what too, we need to quit copping out and talking about our past all the time and realize who we are in Christ now. Well, I could be used by God, but you don't understand my past. Well, guess what? God's forgotten your past, so why do you keep bringing it up? He separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. And here's Saul, and this guy from the world's perspective has it all going on, but spiritually he's a train wreck. But God says, you know what? You go down there, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. You're going to be another man. That's good stuff. Now, what's interesting, he's going to go down and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him. So, he's already had the oil poured on him, but it won't mean anything if the Spirit doesn't follow. You can pour 10 gallons of oil on someone's head, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't follow, it means nothing. Amen? And all the religious rituals in the world without the power of the Holy Spirit mean nothing. You can be baptized, you can walk an aisle, you can pray a prayer, but if there's no sincerity and there's no brokenness and there's no repentance, there's going to be no transformation. And the same is true here. All the oil in the world, there still needed to be the Holy Spirit to fall upon this man. I want to make this very clear. This is not regeneration because this is prior to Christ's coming. He is going to be another man for a while. But sadly, in his rebellion, as we'll see in later chapters, the Holy Spirit is going to leave him. Now, I love the fact that God picked Saul just as he was, because that means he can choose me just as I am. Amen? He didn't straighten him out first. He just took the man where he was and began 
to use him. Again, he'll rebel, but he has an opportunity now to be used by God. Now it says, And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Boy, those are good words. If you underline stuff in your Bible, you should underline that. God is with you. God arranged for each one of these three events to be assigned to Saul. That God is confirming his anointing to him. That he really does have his hand upon him. God can not only handle his problems, supply his needs, but he will give him the power to serve. He's saying, Saul, I'm with you. I'm going to provide for your needs, Saul. I'm going to handle your problems, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And if God has a calling on your life, he will confirm it just that way. He will continue to confirm it. So, faithfully responding to God's calling, recognize that God has a calling on your life. Number two, realize that God is with you in your calling. He doesn't leave you alone. He's providing for you in the midst of it. He's handling the problems in the midst of it. And He's walking with you through it. Number three, remember that God gives us clear direction in His Word. Look at verse eight. And it says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, And surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now, Gilgal was a place where God had brought victory before. This is a place where he renewed the covenant with Israel back in Joshua chapter 4. And this is the place, again, where God is telling him that when you get there, you wait for me. Now, we get to chapter 13, this will be significant. Because he says, wait seven days and wait till I come and make a burnt offering. That's the word of God that's very clear, isn't it? But guess what? Waiting seven days is not something kings like to do. Kings start to be waited on and they start to think that, well, I don't have to wait. I need to take care of me. And we need to make sure we don't get arrogant and we don't become lovers of ourselves as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But that we're desperate for God. And sadly what's going to happen is, we're going to see Saul getting impatient. We get to chapter 13, and it's going to cause him to go against God's word. Instead of waiting for Samuel, he's going to make the sacrifice himself, and that's going to be the beginning of the end for this man. Why? Because he's going to rebel against the clear and written word of God. May we not make the same mistake. May we never think that we can rebel against God's word and there'll be no consequences. When we choose to rebel against the word of God, hold on. Because God gives us His Word because He loves us. May we never use our circumstances as an excuse to disobey God. And that's what He does. Well, the army's getting really big over there. Samuel's waiting for, for, Saul's waiting for Samuel. I know I'm interchanging their names. Please forgive me. So Saul's sitting there waiting for Samuel, and all these days go by, and every day he waits, he looks over, and the Philistine army's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he keeps thinking, man, you got to get her. But it's got three more days, four more. And you know what? The time keeps going. You know what? We can make the same mistake. We can look at our obstacles and think that God wants us just to move instead of rest. Wait upon the Lord. You know when we get to have faith is when the obstacles are too big for us. When they're big enough for us to whip, it doesn't take any faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith for me to you know, handle an eight-year-old that's trying to beat me up. It's just not a problem. But when Goliath shows up, faith. Amen. And the point here is that he's going to miss out because he doesn't heed the word of God. 
He just chooses to go his own way. So faithfully responding to God's calling, recognize that God has a calling on your life. Two, realize that God is with you in your calling. Three, remember that God gives us clear direction in his word. Number four, rest in the promise that he empowers us to walk in obedience to his word. Look at verse nine. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Now, all the signs except for the one at Gilgal waiting upon the Lord, but all three of the other prophecies he gave happened that day. Everything he said, you're going to go up and you're going to see two men, they're going to prophesy about the donkeys. Then you're going to go up and these guys are going to give you some bread. Then you're going to go up and you're going to see these men prophesying and playing music and you're going to start to prophesy with them. All that happened that day. But I want you to notice when it says there that he was given another heart. When did it happen? When he went away from Samuel, God gave him a new heart. You know why? Because Samuel couldn't give him another heart, only God could. And he wanted him not to put his faith in Samuel, but in the Lord. He didn't want him to look at Samuel as being the reason that the Holy Spirit fell upon him or that the new heart was given to him. He wanted him trusting in the Lord. So he waited till he left Samuel and then gave it to him to demonstrate that God did not grant by chance this heart to Saul, but he did it purposefully and he did it after he had left and was walking on his own. God wanted Saul to respect Samuel, but he never wanted him to put him in the place of the Lord. God gave Saul a new heart and empowered him with the Holy Spirit that he might walk in obedience to the Word. See, he gave him the Word, and then he gave him the Holy Spirit. Now, I find this interesting. If you go all the way back, when was he anointed initially in verse 1? The previous verse says that they were walking together, and they stopped, and he ministered to him from the Word of God. That's the last verse of chapter 9. First verse, then he was anointed. Isn't it amazing how the connection there is between being in the Word and being anointed with the Holy Spirit? And the same thing happens here. He is being given the Word. He's being given a command from the Word. And now as he walks away, there's no way he can fulfill these commands of God unless the Holy Spirit is with him. So as soon as he receives the Word, he turns and walks away, and the new heart comes in him as the Holy Spirit falls upon him. Because God knows that without him, we can do nothing. Faithfully responding to God's calling, number five, respond in faith. First, that the Lord might speak through you. Look at verses 10 to 13. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. That very day, Samuel's prophecy comes true. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and the result is that he prophesied among the people foretelling or foretelling or worshiping among this group dedicated of dedicated and bold zealous young men notice this the spirit-filled life is reflected in the words we speak and who we hang out with he turns around he's hanging around with a bunch of guys on fire for god he gets with these guys holy spirit is upon him and all of a sudden he starts worshiping and proclaiming the word the word of god starts coming out of his mouth and guess what he's hanging around with a bunch of other on fire believers Boy, what a picture for us. You want to know the person you are? Look at the people you're hanging out with. Amen? And listen to the words that come out of your mouth. Out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. Your words will give you away every time. You can't be something other, you can't pretend to be something you're not. Now look what it says here in verse 11. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this? 
that has come upon the son of Kish. Is Saul also among the prophets? You know what? They're blown away. You know why? Because this is radical departure from the guy he used to be. They said, now, dude, we knew you before. And you're different. But shouldn't that be the case for everybody when we get saved? We should be radically different. People should be scared to death. What? Dude, what happened to you? And you know what's interesting? It's kind of like, you know, they're saying to him, you know, uh, dude, are you among the prophets now? Look at verse 12. Then a man from there answered and said, but, but who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? It became a saying when anybody became a religious fanatic, they would say, is Saul among the prophets? Kind of like saying, what are you? Come some, some kind of Jesus freak? And a lady asked me that one time in a bowling alley. What are you, some kind of Jesus freak? I go, pretty much. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, people are not going to understand. It's so radically different. Your priorities are going to change. Your passion's going to change. The things that you value are going to change. The things that entertain you are going to change. The way you look at the world is going to change. Everything's going to change. The person you are at work is going to be different. The person you are in your house, the husband, the wife, the mother, the father, the worker, the employee, the neighbor, all of it, different. Why? God's in me now. He's walking upon me. I'm different. And that's what happened to Saul, even though in his case, it's only for a time. You know what? We can't help but talk about the one we're in love with. And if you're in love with Jesus, you can't help but talk about him. And if you know, walking with the Lord, you can't help it. Now, again, I want this to come out wrong, but I'll never forget, I was uh, a friend of mine. I came up to visit, and it was not long after I, for the first time in my life, experienced a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was in my early 20s when that happened, even though I grew up in a Christian home. And I could tell you where it happened. I can tell you where I was sitting. I was sitting at the off-ramp in Acton on my way home from work. And I pulled off the side of the road, been worshiping the Lord, and I was weeping uncontrollably as the Holy Spirit fell upon me, and my life was never the same. My wife will tell you that my life is not always perfect. I'm still a sinner saved by grace, but my priorities changed, my passions changed. Things that were important to me weren't so important anymore. And I'll never forget coming up here to visit a friend. We all went out to dinner, and he said, Dude, you were saved before, but man, you're really saved now. And all I could say was, that's the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? We can be saved before. That's by fire. Got the get-out-of-hell-free card. Kind of cruising with the world. But may we not be satisfied with that. Man, I want want to be so close to Jesus, I'm glowing. How about you? You know, just, man, let's be like Moses coming down from the mountain. Got to put a veil on, man, because we're just reflecting him so bright. And that's what happens to Saul here, but it's only for a minute, sadly. Because the people see him, but he doesn't remain. And he says, who is their father? And this is because often, you know, the faith would be handed down from the fathers to the son, and that ought to be happening today. Verse 13. And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. So this outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and again, it was a priority before he even returned home, just to worship and praise God. And now he's going to go home, and we're going to start to see him, that he responds in faith, and the Lord speaks through him. But watch him now start to be overcome by, I believe, Fear. Because when God calls us, the enemy is always waiting for us. And there's always a difficulty in a trial that comes with it. Look at verse 14 through 16. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? Where you been? The guy's been gone for a while. And he said, To look for the donkeys. 
And when we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. So Saul's uncle said, well, tell me, what did Samuel say to you? Now, is this a witnessing opportunity or what? You know, you go to men's retreat all weekend, you give your life to the Lord, you come to work. Tell me about your weekend. Okay. Where you been, Saul? Tell me about where you been. What have you been up to? And look what Saul says. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. I think he said more than that. He anointed him. He told him he's going to be the king. Now some people have said that Saul here is being humble. He didn't want to say, well, let me tell you what happened. I'm the king. You know, I can see where he wouldn't want to do that. But couldn't he have said, you know what? The spirit of the living God fell upon me. And let me tell you about it. But again, often when those opportunities come, we fall back into our flesh and we wimp out, don't we? I know I do. There's time, and I know the Holy Spirit's telling me to say it, and I, I don't. Anybody else struggle with that? Is this me? But the Lord would have us to reach out and to, to, to speak up. And Saul had been ignorant about who Samuel was previously. Now his own uncle knows who Samuel is and asks him, what did he tell you? Look at the rest of verse 16. He told us plainly about the donkeys, but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel has said. And again, some believe this is a sign of humility. I personally believe it's a sign of fear. Verse 17. Then Samuel called to the people together, the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now this is one of the main gathering places of the children of Israel where the revival that we saw in chapter 7 took place. Just a few chapters ago. Verse 18 and 19. And said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now, you got to love Samuel because the people are gathered together now to cast lots to see who the king is going to be. But he reminds them one more time what they've done with God. He takes every opportunity to take them back to say, oh, by the way, guys, what you're about to do, wrong. Remember, God's your king. And that here's one more opportunity for Israel to go, you know what, God is our king, never mind. Oh, what? by the way, Saul, never mind, right? I mean, that could have happened. But it's not what happened because God knew their hearts and God was going to give them what they wanted. The people were assembled together, about to announce a king, but Samuel reminds them. Look at the last part of that verse. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So they all lined up by tribe. They're all there together by tribe. Within the tribe were the families and clans and then within that. And so they then cast lots. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God already anoint Saul as king through Samuel? What's the answer? Yes, he did. So why are they doing this? So the people would know that God was the one who chose them, not Samuel. He was going to let them see all this take place in front of them so they would see that God's hand was in the midst of it. Look at verse 20 and 21. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near the tribe of Benjamin, was chosen. So Benjamin, the Benjamites, of the twelve tribes, Benjamites. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to draw near, by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And, the, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So all the people are there. Everybody's there. They're all mounted up. Now Saul already knows it's going to be me. And he runs and he hides. Now some people again say humility, or, but I still say fear. 
Now again, I don't know for sure, but here's why I believe fear. Because true humility would be obedient to God. Amen? If you're really humble, you're saying, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done. And so, Lord, you're the one that called me to be king. And so, Lord, I need to be there. And when it's time for them to point out, then I need to step up. But I believe what is happening here is fear. And look what it says in verse 22. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered. And how did the Lord answer? I wonder this. There he is in the equipment. It just says the Lord answered. And you can't just pick black and white stones and say, there he is hidden in the equipment. So I'm thinking maybe he spoke. There he is in the equipment. Imagine, here's Saul hiding in the equipment. There he is, right there. (laughs) Can't hide from God, amen? He's got a calling on your life. Best to just respond. And so what happens is that he's hiding from God's calling, and you know what? This, I believe, is most of the church today. God has a calling on our life, and we're hiding the equipment. We're just not, we're missing out on God. God's got a plan. God's got a calling. God wants me to do things, and I'm too busy watching reruns at home to just get involved. We're hiding in the equipment. We're hiding in our hobbies. We're hiding in our career. We're hiding in our entertainment. We're missing out on God's highest. And you know what? Sometimes it is fear, and sometimes it's just straight rebellion. True humility is submitted to God's will and calling. It doesn't hide from it. So faithfully responding to God's calling. Last point. Resist being swayed by the words of men. Last point. So it says here, verse 23. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. We already knew that. So he's a tall guy. So they said, hey, tall guy. We like tall guy. Yeah, that's what we want, tall guy. Some of our enemies are tall, so we think in tall. We think they're starting a basketball team, but they're looking for a king. So God gives them the, the celebrity king they've been wanting for, one they'd asked for, one who would lead them, sadly, not into victory, but into despair and defeat. Now look what it says, verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? This, there was no one, no one like him among all you people. Again, this is from a physical perspective. There's nobody like this guy. So all the people shouted, long live the king. You thought, you, you thought that the English people made that up. It's in the Bible. People still saying it today. Long live the king. The people of Israel in their desire for the image and you know, they want all that pageantry of, of a human king. They've been longing to have someone they could look to. Kind of like when they made the golden calf. Something we can see tangibly and follow. And now they raise this guy up, and you know what? He fits the bill. He's the best looking guy around. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's yoked, he's strong. Long live the king. No one like him among the people. But we know that he's far short of being the king they already had, the Lord. Verse 25. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. I believe, probably quotes from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, and tells them how a king should operate. And what he lets them know is that even though he's the king, he is not God. The king is still to be submitted to God, and so are the people. So the king's to function according to the word of God and to God's rules. And that's still true today. No matter who's in charge, God's in charge. Amen? They all answer to God. You need to be praying for those 
in leadership in our country because they will answer to God one day. So he explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his own house. Verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him. Now, this is awesome. You've got to understand that he's given him the Holy Spirit, He's given him the support of Samuel the prophet, and now he's given him godly guys to hang out with him. Saul has every opportunity to be used mightily by God, and the only way he's not going to be is if he rebels against God, and sadly, that's exactly what he's going to do. And it says there, valiant men with him whose hearts God had touched. Boy, give me some guys to hang out with whose hearts God has touched. Amen? Those are people I want to hang out with. Last verse. But some of the rebels said, some of your translations don't say rebels, they say children of Belial. That means wicked, destruction, evil. And so some came up and brought him gifts and praised him, but some of the people who were there attacked him. Look what it says. How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. So some brought him presents, some brought him praise, some magnified and lifted up his name, some told him, long live the king. But others despised him. Again, here's another picture of Jesus. Because when he came into Jerusalem, what were they crying out? Hosanna. Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest, right? Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Save now, we pray you. That's the translation of Hosanna. Save now. But that group saying Hosanna, and then there's another group that despises him. Another group that jets out their lip at him and curses at him as he hangs upon the cross. So we see here this. There's two factions. And you know what? This is one place where I believe that Saul absolutely did the right thing. It says, but he held his peace. He kept silent. He, it says that the original language means he turned a deaf ear. Now, as the king, could he have smoked these guys? He could have said, by the way, I'm the king now. So army, smoke them. Could have done that. Again, picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. People cursing him. Couldn't he have smoked them? Yet he held his peace. Amazing how they'll even use a guy like Saul to be a picture, at least in this chapter, of the Lord. But he is. As king, he could have dealt severely with them. Begins by showing patience. Now, as we respond to God's calling upon our lives, it is important that we resist being swayed by the words of men, either listening to too much praise or too much persecution. Amen? Amen. Letting a lot of praise make us feel really great about ourselves or allowing a lot of persecution or a lot of hatred or things like that to cause us to feel defeated. Guys, when people, the Bible says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say evil things against you for my name's sake, for so they did to the prophets who went before you. Guess what? All who follow Christ will be persecuted, as we will see on Sunday. All. So if you're not being persecuted, you're not walking. Amen? So we need to not allow the glowing words of men to allow us to be puffed up and arrogant, nor should we allow the attacks of men to have us walk around defeated. Guys, remember who you're serving, who you're following, and the only one you need to be standing right before, it's Him. And he loves you guys. You are his treasured possession. Hold fast, not to the words of men, but the word of God. So in closing, faithfully responding to God's calling, recognize that God has a calling on your life. Number two, realize that God is with you in your calling. Number three, remember that God gives us clear direction in his word. 
Number four, rest in the promise that he, he empowers us to walk in obedience to his word. Number five, respond in faith that, we might, that he might speak through us and that we might not be overcome with fear. And then number six, resist being swayed by the words of men, either praise or persecution. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We praise and worship and honor your name. You are a great and an awesome God. Lord, we desire that we would not walk this path on our own. Lord, we, I pray for the people in this room that you would stir up the gifts within them. Lord, that you would reveal to them, maybe for the first time in their lives, the clear calling you have upon their lives. Father, I pray that as they recognize their calling, they would realize, Lord, they're not walking in this calling alone. But Lord, you direct them by your spirit. You direct them by your word. You desire to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be a few ministering to many, but we would be many ministering to each other. So, Lord, I pray that each of us would realize that we're called and we're gifted, and, Lord, you have so much you desire to do in and through us. May we not miss out on your highest for our lives. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.
Oh 
Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for that wonderful cross. May it never grow common. 